This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The pandemic has put in focus issues around our nursing shortage. If you recall, the governor had to issue an emergency order to allow nurses licensed in other states, but not in Hawaii, to work in the islands during our health crisis. We talked to Dan Ross, the head of the nurses union, who was encouraged that the Health Association of Hawaii is talking about Hawaii joining some 39 states to institute a nursing compact. HAH president and CEO Hilton Rathel said it's in early discussions with lawmakers about a bill to do just that. Here's Ross explaining the union's position. We're in favor of it. I mean, we would assume that, that any um, safeguards we put in place that I think concerns were brought up about, you know, if somebody has a discipline in one state that it gets carried across the others. And I think actually that this compact would probably help with that, that, that the information gets gets transmitted from state to state much quicker and easier so that somebody couldn't say, say for instance, lose their license in Ohio and then come to Hawaii and get a license and start, start working without Hawaii knowing about the discipline that was put on them in the other state. So that's another positive of being part of the compact. The other just right now, what's come to light with the, the shortage with the COVID stuff was getting nurses over here. It's been very challenging. And then, you know, you wouldn't need the governor to be issuing these proclamations, emergency proclamations, honoring out-of-state licenses. And, you know, even with the proclamations, we still, I've still had uh, nurses contact me who are having trouble getting positions because I guess the message didn't get to all the individuals in HR, so a hospital as large as Queens, who is actively behind it, I had to take it to upper leadership that their hiring manager was telling somebody, no, we don't hire anybody with temporary licenses, who's somebody who had a Nevada nursing license in order to move to Hawaii, which was wrong information, and it got, it got corrected. But it, it's just not getting, it apparently did not get circulated to everybody. So if we were part of the compact, it would take all that away because they would have their license per se. Yeah, so we all need to be on the same page. You know, the, the point that you brought up about people being disciplined in one state and then coming here and applying for a license, the board has come down on people who have lied about their status. Right. And so this would yeah. help, hopefully, uh, uh, there, there'd be some sharing of information so you wouldn't have that situation. My understanding is that was the main impetus behind creating the compact in the, in the first place, right? It, it not so much to make it quicker for people to get across. And especially right now with the DCCA so short-staffed and it taking, it always took a long time to get the, your paperwork processed through, but apparently it's taking even longer now. All of that would go away. It's, like, it's just, just removing a bunch of red tape. We're strongly in favor of joining the compact and and recognizing other states, and they would, it, it gives us more ability, and I could see maybe, you know, but I'm glad the hospital association is behind it, because I could see possibly the hospitals might be afraid that it would make it easier for their nurses to go to other states and, and work. Oh, I see what you mean. If they are paying a higher rate somewhere else, that they would be apt to move. Yes, they, they, right. Be easier, right? Be, you could just say, hey, I got my license. It's, it's recognized in, in New York or, you know, California, Ohio, whatever state it is, and, and I can just go. I don't have to go through the, the the time and paperwork of getting a new license, get another state's license. Yeah. So it could be a double-edged sword then for some of these hospitals. I, I suppose that you know that that's something that you would look at, but I don't anticipate that that would be a really big big concern. You know, because most of the people that are here are here because they want to be here. And, and that's what I'm thinking, is that there may be some pluses for Hawaii. Uh, it might be more of an attractive place to um, to live to some nurses. But, yeah, I, I see what you mean about the about the salaries. If the salaries aren't competitive uh, and the folks that want to move up may move elsewhere. Right. And, you know, which honestly, we're we are in favor of of that because we're we're trying to put pressure on the employers to offer more competitive salaries or compensation packages, the whole package, so that it competes with uh, with what people can get in the mainland. Anything else that you want to add about this concept? This that we're fully in favor of it, and I'd be happy to collaborate with HAH, and if there is a bill that they're pushing to get introduced, I'd, I'd love to know about it and we'll give Hilton a call. I think it's it's only going to help the bigger picture 
here in Hawaii. Well, I mean, certainly if the majority of states across the country are already doing it, you know, why can't we? What's the holdup? And got to turn the stone over and over to figure out what we need to yeah. do. It's going to take them some work because they're going to have to do something, right? Whether it's just instead of just doing the same old, same old, you're going to have to change. And that's always, change is always difficult for people. It, it's necessary. I think uh, hopefully we can get something and, and get into the compact and take one of the barriers to getting enough health care workers. Given the uh, COVID situation now, you know, our hospitalizations are down. I think our hospital census generally, though, is still up. You know, mm-hmm. w- what's the snapshot uh, from where the Nurses Association sits and the, the situation with the traveling nurses? Well, they're still utilizing, a lot of our employers are still utilizing large numbers of the travel nurses, and we just need to hire more people up. And, you know, we we get the, the concept that we need the travel nurses to be able to fill in for temporary in, emergent needs type of thing, but it shouldn't be something that's relied upon. And it's gotten to the point over the last years where employers are relying upon it. So we need to get the employers to offer up the compensation packages that will get regular employees here and you know regular nurses nurses to hire on as regular employees. And, you know, they are stepping up as far as the nursing schools and, and the new grads. So the larger facilities are hiring more new graduate nurses, which, which we applaud. But we need both the new graduates and the experienced nurses. Well, you know, Hilton Rathel, you know, did mention the concern that they've got because they are turning away students at the nursing schools because they don't have enough faculty uh, and and that's a dilemma because you know the the faculty I know are part of a bargaining unit and uh, salaries for nursing teachers, but you know not everybody else in the bargaining unit. Yeah, I can see how that would be a be a challenge for them. But it's like with everything, you know, it, healthcare jobs are not the only ones who have this disparity of the cost of living where where our wages are are lower or equal to the mainland, yet our cost of living is higher. It's, it's kind of across the board here in Hawaii, and it's something that really needs to be addressed for the working people of Hawaii. We should have COLA increases for everybody, not just not just nurses. And I get it's it's not something you can just snap your fingers and do overnight. It's it's a big, big issue. And, you know, the, the shortage of the nursing instructors, that's all related, right? It's all more nursing. It's, it's related to the same problem. We've got people not enough people in nursing, and I believe they usually require at least a master's degree to do the lecture part. We have tons of nurses who are working in a hospital who are also teaching on the side, but they do the clinical because you have to have your master's to to do the lecture part, right? So they're, they're the ones who take the students into the hospital and oversee them while they're in the hospital, that, that sort of thing. I, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that that dilemma of if we raise it for the for the nurses, what about all the all the rest? Yeah, I, I haven't looked at that. I, I can see how that could could be an issue. Yeah, it's a little um, sticky. Right, and you know, if, if we get our our wages increased like that, we're already the hospital nurses, the nurse working in the hospital can make more than the instructor does, and so what does keep them there? And I guess there's other things we can look at, but there there are a number of people who don't want to stay in the bedside nursing. You know, that's, that was one of our issues, too, with losing nurses because people are leaving bedside nursing and they're going to other areas, such as teaching. So, I, you know, I think it's something that can be worked out over, over time. And I don't think it would be a good reason to say, no, don't increase the wages of the nurses because then we can't get instructors. That doesn't make sense. And if you look at it historically, it's only recently that they've been turning away students, that, that it's only recently that the hospitals have been hiring the, the local grads, you know, up until a, a, a year or so ago, they were all having to go to the mainland for jobs anyway. So we were turning out quite enough for our local need here. And that was Dan Ross, head of the Hawaii Nurses Association, which represents some 4,000 members working across the state. This is a conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, 
We have an interview with the director of a new historical drama hitting movie theaters later this year. He shares a great story about a waterfall. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of Hawaii waterfalls. Some of the most well-known are Akaka Falls on the island of Hawaii, Oaimuku Falls on Maui, Opaika'a Falls on Kauai. Molokai has a rather unique one. The Friendly Isle Sea Cliffs are the tallest in the world and home to Oluupena Falls. It has the added distinction of falling nearly directly into the ocean, unlike the island's other tall falls, which are fairly inland. Here on Oahu, we also have a special one, an upside-down waterfall. It is found in a place where strong trade winds catch the water and throw it back upward into the low-hanging mists that often hug the valley walls. The illusion is a waterfall that falls upward into the clouds. So, for today's Backyard Quiz, can you name this famous upside-down waterfall, and where can it be found? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. auto dealers met for their annual convention on the island of Hawaii this past weekend, the first time since the pandemic shutdown. We spoke with Dave Rolfe of the Hawaii Automobile Dealers Association this morning, who described the gathering as sobering. He says supply issues will continue to challenge the industry going through 2023. So that will likely push the spring auto show into the fall of next year because inventory to our shores will not begin to normalize until then. Rolf says the industry is on the verge of great change with electric cars and automated vehicles. Conversation around climate change is what's driving this in these pivotal times, what he called the wow effect. And while there are high hopes for the Inflation Reduction Act and the EV transition, he cautions it may take some time. But he underscored we are at a pivotal time. It's not just an overnight thing. That whole Inflation Reduction Act was aimed at creating that arsenal of democracy again that kind of helped us in World War II, right? So that everything was done domestically and we didn't have to rely on other countries, you know, to supply these rare minerals that go into the batteries. So everything has been climate driven. All this legislation is climate driven and justifiably so. You know, we we had uh, a speaker, uh, Chip Fletcher from the university, come and speak to us just two days ago. And um, he talked about the sea level rise and all those things. So, you know, the, the, all this is a watershed moment. It's moving um quickly to, to the change of, driven by the California um, rule that says that uh, you know, you got all these different vehicles percentage-wise, they have to be EVs, or there's a $20,000 fine per vehicle to the manufacturer. I mean, that's really a, a lot of teeth in that uh, mandate. And, and, it, and by the way, it, it's just uh, going to be difficult for everybody. I think Hawaii's method of making the transition is, is so much better where everybody comes to the table. We all work on this together. We, we feel the need being an island state. As you peer down, you know, the rest of 2022, our, our auto sales slump this year, you know, coming out of the pandemic. They're going to be off. They're going to be off pretty dramatically. I mean, uh, the, the mainland is down 20%. I think we're going to be down that much, too, down into the mid-40s. The normal amount that we sell every year is 50,000 cars. So over a 20-year period, we have a million cars sold, and that's about how many are on the road. But, um, you know, we're going to be below normal because of the uh, supply chain issues. Uh, it's really backed up. 
the supply chain issue, we've got to break that, you know, in order to reverse this trend. Uh, if you don't have the cars, you can't sell them. And, and that's going to run another, you know, all the way to the auto show in October of 2023. You know, so we can just expect the supply chain issue to be with us quite a while longer. As far as the Hawaii sales, we normally see the, a lot of the Japanese-made cars, you know. I mean, they're the most popular here. That's see. because of the 1973 Middle East oil embargo. Everything changed to smaller cars, and, and that's when you saw this real huge influx of, uh, you know, uh, Toyota, Nissan, uh, Honda, um, uh, Mazda, uh, and, and also the, the, the Volkswagen Beetle. That, that was a huge, it was all energy related. And so we had this huge change in Hawaii then. There used to be 3,000 Volkswagens come in on a, on a single uh, uh, ship uh, in those days. Now we've had this whole uh, watershed moment again, just like the uh, Middle East oil embargo. Uh, and it's now this huge shift after COVID, um, you know, toward um, renewable energy vehicles. And it's just as dramatic as anything we've seen for, what would that be, um, you know, 40 years. And so how are Hawaii dealers, you know, looking at this? Made huge investments, you know, in, in uh, training and in, in new vehicles and uh, in, in bringing, you know, level three chargers, uh, which are very expensive things that, that, that charge vehicles very rapidly, right? You know, instead of that three to six miles an hour like of charge that you can put in a battery, uh, you know, at level one, uh, these things can put 250 miles uh, of charge in a, in a battery in an hour, you know? So, but they're very expensive. They're, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, $70,000. So putting those things in front of the dealerships, um, you're seeing more and more of Thanks to the um, Inflation Reduction Act, there'll be more money to do that. And we just had Scott Seeu speak to us from Hawaiian Electric Industries. Um, you know, they're going to be putting uh, the infrastructure to the dealership or to the businesses, you know, with some of the new programs they have. And that'll help a great deal. Moving from the distributor, it, it, you know, up there, the electric distribution box, um, you know, all the way to the dealership, just getting all that wiring done. And all that infrastructure in is expensive and time-consuming. Yeah, everything is just time, time, time. It's going to take time, time, time. But, you know, we, we're we on it, and we're, we're helping move it as rapidly as possible. And that's why the why other dealers are all in on this. We've helped make the change, and a voluntary change, without the mandates that California and those other 16 states are implementing. And I just don't know what's going to happen if the manufacturers are going to have to send all their vehicles to those states and we won't even be able to get them. Wait, come again? So explain that? If you have the California mandate, which I said is a $20,000 fine for failure to hit certain percentages of electric vehicles, and the 16 other states have to follow them because they're bound kind of uh, to that mandate, and manufacturers can only make so many because of the, the restraints on on uh, shipments. And would they send them all to the to the 16 California mandate states, and we wouldn't be able to get as many electric vehicles? Wow. So that's something to consider. So while there may be many people eagerly waiting to get into a EV, we might not be able to get our hands on them. Right. So we have asked uh, our members of Congress to join us in and making a, a nationwide approach to this instead of this patchwork quilt set up now where you have certain what's called zero emission vehicle states. So the manufacturers are just kind of forced by these giant fines into sending their vehicles just to these certain states that are zero emission vehicle states. And we're technically not even allowed to be one because our air quality is, we don't have any non compliant air quality areas. We're not even allowed to apply to be a zero emission state. So so basically we're in a position, a holding pattern, you know, we've got to see what automobiles will qualify for, you know, these credits. We've got to see what the inventory will be like. Yeah, it's, uh, it's three-dimensional chess. Upsets the supply and demand formula. It boils down to uh, the government putting fines on vehicles that aren't sold in 17 states. And that's why those states may get the electric vehicles 
and we would have to just wait in line. It totally upsets the whole free market. The whole, it upsets the whole concept of supply and demand. Everything is upside down. Nothing that you kind of assume is, is happening here, like, oh, we're so happy to get electric cars. Well, everybody's going to run and buy them. No, hold on there. That was Dave Rolfe of the Hawaii Automobile Dealers Association talking to us about the landscape of the auto industry and the supply issues coming out of the pandemic, further complicated by the Inflation Reduction Act. He tells us that the annual Hawaii Auto Show that normally happens in the spring will likely be pushed to the fall of next year because we just don't have the inventory to show the cars. explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Will Jawanda, author of My Seven Black Fathers. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how mentorship can provide a pivotal change in the life of a young person. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Ocean shipping. Well, it's seen better days, but you can't just give up on it, can you? It's a little bit like a broken sink. The plumber doesn't throw away the sink or the sink fixture. He fixes the pipes. I'm Kai Rizdal. Plumbing issues in our ports next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Punahou School, committed to providing an education tailored to each student's potential to thrive. Learn more about its financial aid program at punahou.edu. special session. That is what could happen following a decision by the High Court here in Hawaii. Honolulu Civil Beat's latest addition to its staff, James Gonzer, is on with us this morning. Hi, James. Hi, Catherine. Very good to talk with you this morning. Yes. So this has been quite a dilemma. Uh, I know prosecutors across the state are worried about the decision and what could happen. Explain to our listeners the implications here. Well, basically, the Supreme Court came out with a decision that said all serious felony cases need to go before a grand jury rather than just a preliminary hearing. So that means that there has to be enough grand juries to handle this. And during the pandemic, there was a shortage of people to populate grand juries. And so the prosecutor used the preliminary hearing system more than grand juries because it was, you know, more functional during the pandemic. It was totally legal. It had been used for 40 years. And it was just another way of indicting serious felons. But the decision of the Supreme Court was that you need to take serious crimes to a grand jury. It was a three to two ruling or decision. So that's the way it is now. And so all the all of these cases, uh, 168 people who were convicted using this uh, preliminary hearing in order to go to trial, their convictions are in jeopardy right now. Yeah, and this is more of a a dilemma really for the neighbor islands where the grand juries, they don't meet that often. So it's a real problem. And folks are worried that, you know, a lot of these people that are behind bars now will be released into the community. You're very right. The neighbor islands just don't have as many grand juries. But the judiciary has stepped up and they are going to hold more grand juries both in Honolulu and on all the neighbor islands. Now, whether it's enough to continue with the current caseload and the backload, we've yet to see. And the the wrinkle here is that now uh, lawmakers are being called on to fix this and to come into special session to do what they need to do in order to, to keep these people behind bars. 
Yeah, yeah. It's kind of ironic. This has already been a constitutional amendment that approved it, and there's a statute that the Supreme Court weighed in on and said it has to be grand jury. But the way to fix it, and in Chief Justice Reinhold's, in his dissent from the majority decision, he said it's up to the legislature to go in and fix this. So if they want it fixed right away, as the prosecutor wants, they need to go into special session right away. Yeah, I did see the announcement from the uh, Senate president's office saying that they were in talks about this. Uh, How long do you think it might take before they reach a decision and set a date? Well, I guess it depends on how much pressure is put on president, the governor, and the speaker of the house. The way to call a special session is if the governor can convene it. He can just say we're holding one. Or the House and the Senate needs two-thirds of its members to agree to a special session. And that's not always easy to do. And remember, this is a election year. So that may weigh into the decision of whether they want to go into special session or not. And, you know, when we hear the word special session, we all often think that maybe lawmakers are looking for other things that they need to fix. So it wouldn't just be a one issue session that they might entertain other things. But then that could, you know, draw things out. You're absolutely right. Um, if, if there's a few things to fix at the same time, it's much more likely to, uh, to be of more importance to more people and therefore get it done. This is a pretty important issue and it needs to be decided and the legislature is the place to do that. Obviously, the prosecutor and the Supreme Court disagree. Uh, grand juries have long been the way that peers t- let peers make a decision on whether a case should be go, should go to court, should go to trial. A preliminary hearing is just a judge who decides. Now, he may know the law better, but it's not your peers deciding. So this is a tough one that, that lawmakers will have to decide. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we've got, like you mentioned, uh, uh, an election coming up, you know, so uh, hopefully the lawmakers are, are all in town. Uh, but, yeah, it does certainly then require everybody to uh, come back to the big house <laughs> there on Baratania yeah. Street and uh, and figure this out. An interesting thing here is is the case that decided this, uh, the state versus Richard Obrero. The prosecutors went to grand jury, and the grand jury denied. They said it, it wasn't good enough to go to trial. That same day, they went to preliminary hearing, and a judge said it was good enough. And that's what brought this all to a head. You know, was that... Was that, you know, asking mom and mom says no, so you go ask dad. Yeah. So. Well, we'll just have to see what happens and how this gets resolved. But thank you so much, James. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. That was reporter James Gonzer with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Earlier this month, we had a listener from Muncie, Indiana, reach out to us. Justin Yoder was checking on the status of an American living in Ukraine, who we interviewed not long after the Russian invasion began. That U.S. citizen, Bill Kiesling, shared with us that he and other Americans in his city were staying put to ride out the war, even though millions in the country fled to safety, relocating to safe places across the globe. Yoder, who listened to our interview, had heard that Kiesling had passed away this month and was hoping to confirm the information for some of his former co-workers at Indiana Oxygen. And for that, we turned to Kailua resident Larry Bartley, who confirmed that he had recently been in touch with Kiesling's family and girlfriend in Ukraine. Kiesling uh, was to be cremated after dying of natural causes. Bartley says he and Kiesling had been in almost daily contact, and he'd been going through their correspondence following news of his passing. You know, he's living in Mikhailiv, which is under siege by the Russians. And this was, uh, you know, in February, March, April, and the Russians got very close to his city, and his city's a shipbuilding town, Nikolaev or Mikolaev, you, you can pronounce it either way, on the north end of the Black Sea. And so, you know, rockets were, you know, coming into his neighborhood, and but they tried to live life pretty much as normal, you know, going out to eat and so forth, but a lot, a lot of things were closed. 
like the restaurants were closing and you know businesses were closing and so forth and money was tight so uh, we got pretty close there for a long time and he would send me one or two emails per day for several months and uh, anyway uh, uh, his mother had called me a couple days after he passed away and told me and then the girlfriend called later to give me more details and so forth and uh, you know in her kind of broken English but she's um She's on her own now. They were living together, and he was supporting them. So she's on her own now with um, no jobs available and so forth. So the last thing she said to me, she was, she, um, I sent her some money, you know, to handle a funeral and also uh, something for her to get by on a little while. And she said, well, thank me, thank you very much. I, I'm going to use this to buy my uniform. I'm joining the Army to kill Russians. Well, looking to to do something during this time. Bill died of of natural causes then? Yes, definitely. Uh, Pneumonia. He was not in good health all along for a long time. Not in great health, but, you know, getting Mm -hmm. along okay. But then pneumonia caught up with him. And uh, I think just general weakness and fatigue. Well, I think, you know, people were obviously just concerned about the, the safety of the Americans there. And I know there was that last ditch effort, I think, gosh, in the last month where they were just saying, you know, any American should seriously consider getting out. And I wondered if he would if he would change his mind. Well, actually, some of us offered to help him get out, you know, mm-hmm. um, early on. And he just refused. He said, I'm here, period. To know him is to love him. And he did a lot of crazy things in his life. So by this time, it wasn't any kind of a surprise to me where he, where he was living or what he was doing. I just went with the flow and listened to what he had to say and kept in touch with him and tried to help him when I could. And his mother is still living in, in uh, Indiana. Mm-hmm. I talked to her you know, last week. I'll tell you about one email he sent me. He says, went out for breakfast this morning with friends. It says, sunny day, uh, walking home, missiles firing out of my neighborhood to intercept incoming Russian missiles. I think it rained this afternoon. End of message. That was Kailua resident Larry Bartley, who reconnected with his childhood friend, Bill Kiesling, who was living in Ukraine. He learned of his passing this month and shared it with us and listeners on the mainland who were worried about Kiesling's safety living in a war zone. And checking further into our mailbox, here is an email we received recently about Title IX, the federal law prohibiting sex-based discrimination at schools, receiving funding from the federal government, like the University of Hawaii. Aloha, why does UH have 12 women's sports, two co-ed sports, and only seven men's sports? Doesn't seem like UH has the gender equality and fairness which their doctrine aims to promote. We cannot promote the success of women by eliminating men. Thanks, Tojo. Well, we forwarded this email to the university for a response, and spokesperson Dan Meisenthal sent this reply. It is not the number of teams. It is the number of student athletes. UH football is by far the largest team with just over 100 athletes. So to comply with Title IX, more women's teams had to be added. So the gender breakdown of the student athletes matches the gender breakdown of the campus. Most schools with football programs have this type of disparity between men and women's teams. And after a story with great white shark photographer David Fleetham, we got this voicemail. It's Peter Mally. It was nice to hear about sharks. I'm a photographer. And since we're surrounded with the ocean, we should take care of the ocean more than we do. I mean, we do a pretty good job. We have a safe coral reef sunscreen now on the islands and we ban styrofoam mostly and plastic straw and containers. Now we need to ban styrofoam coolers and also microbeads. Be nice to be the first I think in the US to ban product with microbeads. Great programming. Aloha. Aloha, and thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line, 792-8217. 
today's Backyard Quiz, we tested your knowledge of Hawaii's waterfalls. When we think of waterfalls, we picture water thrown from a precipice and rushing out and down to the base of a cliff. As in the case with Waimoku Falls on Maui and Akaka Falls on the Big Island. But in Nu'uanu Valley on Oahu, you can find one that appears up upside down. Its name is Waipuhia, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Its name means blown water, and the phenomenon happens when strong trade winds blowing up the sides of the Ko'ola Mountains catch the water flowing over Mount Konahuanui and throw it upward into low-hanging mists along the valley walls. The illusion is a waterfall that falls upward into the clouds. If you know where to stop along the old Pali Road, you can still look through breaks in the trees to see this famous landmark. Mahalo to Sam Gon and the Nature Conservancy of Hawaii for sending in this quiz over 10 years ago. And congrats to Stephen from Maui, our first-time winner. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the 17th Annual Hawaii Book and Music Festival, celebrating stories and storytelling throughout October. Schedule at hawaiibookandmusicfestival.com. It's time to give aloha. This month, when you shop at Foodland, Second Save, or Foodland Farms, please consider making a donation to Hawaii Public Radio. Every September, Foodland's Give Aloha program matches a portion of donations made to participating nonprofits like HPR at checkout. For more info, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash givealoha. Mahalo. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Hawaii Theater Center, presenting Joan Osborne and Cracker, performing 8 p.m. Saturday, October 1st. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com. film, The Wind and the Reckoning, will make its world premiere at the Boston Film Festival this Saturday. The historical drama tells the story of the Ko'olau Rebellion, also known as the Battle of Kalalau, that took place on Kauai in the late 1800s. The film stars veteran actor and Big Island resident Jason Scott Lee. It was directed by David L. Cunningham. Cunningham grew up in Kona and graduated from Kona Waina High School before attending film school at the University of Southern California. He's directed more than a dozen films, four of which were either set in Hawaii or shot here. The Conversations Russell Subiano got the opportunity to sit down with Cunningham to talk about his new film. I love this idea that you chose to make a film about a little known historical moment, but a significant moment and one probably that resonates today as well. Can you share with our audience a little bit about what The Wind and the Reckoning is about? Absolutely. True story, 1893, backdrop of the overthrow of Queen Liliu Okulani and the new provisional government is really kind of flexing their muscles in terms of trying to exert control so they ramp up the policy of sending Hawaiians to Molokai, Kalapapa, and they give uh, bounty hunters $10 per native Hawaiian. The very sad fact was that even if you were just suspected of having leprosy, you would be sent there. So many people who didn't have leprosy, whether it was a birthmark or something, were torn away and heartbreaking stories, six-year-olds being taken out of school and sent on their own away. So that's the backdrop. Kolal is a, a Paniolo, and him and his son, Kale, eight-year-old son, both get leprosy. And the provisional government no longer allows a Kukua a helper to go with them. Mm -hmm. And so the, the wife is separated from them. And they refuse to be separated. And essentially, there's an encounter, which you'll see in the movie, and they flee into the jungle. And for three and a half years, they're pursued by bounty hunters. And it's that story of, of this family on the run. So 
Amazing story. Yeah. Ours is based upon P.E. Lani's book, Ko'olau's Wife, which was only translated in 2001. Wow. So her account is, you know, firsthand. There's a handful of other books, including a short story by Jack London. There's a couple other books, but she's she was the eyewitness. So when we found her book, that really lit us up that, wow, that's this is this is the real deal. Yeah. So the words you hear in the movie are her words. I know the screenplay was written by John Fusco. He's well known for having written the Young Gun films. I read he had been thinking about writing this movie for like 30 plus years. How did the script find you? Yeah. So John Fusco is a good friend of mine and we were working on another project that he had written years ago and we were riding horses at his ranch and he's like, David, you ever heard of Cola? This is like early 2000s. And I was embarrassed because from here hadn't heard. And he started telling me about it. He's like, that would be a good movie, man. You know, we should talk about this. And John would come out to Hawaii and cycle through here and spend, you know, five or six weeks at a time. And one of those times in 2013, we both started talking and John went for it, did some all-nighters and got the script going. And then we bounced back and forth, getting it developed. So we were able to develop it together. And I almost got it made a couple of times. And making movies is very difficult and fragile process. Like you have one element fall out and the whole funding can crumble or whatever, you know. And so it fell apart a couple of times. I was on my way to South Africa to make a different movie early 2020. Pandemic happened and South Africa got hit hard. I continued to prep that movie virtually and then they got hit hard again. And so I had to put that film on the shelf and I was watching what was going down with the pandemic around the world. And this script was just haunting me because it's about a family in a pandemic, government control, race elements coming up because of the pandemic. So I called up John. I called up a couple other partners. One of my partners, his name is Dale and some of my backers. And I said, guys, what if? We do the the indie, low-budget version of this thing, and we all just make it happen. And everybody was sitting at home in full lockdown, and I pitched them this idea. I said, I know a place out in Kohala. I bet we could talk our government into letting us make this movie if we all go into a bubble. And so we moved into an off-the-grid ranch in Kohala, and that's what we did. And we all lived cast, crew, extras, We all lived there together and made this film, and it was an amazing, amazing time. And very proud of it. The whole cast, all but two of the actors, are from Hawaii. And, yeah, like I said, the whole crew was and shot it all on location out there. So we were the first full-length feature film to be made post-pandemic. Oh, okay. Okay. um, So we had to have all these extraordinary measures, um, testing multiple times a week. And this was before vaccines and all of that. So that was a challenge. I guess the three biggest challenges was filming during COVID, the making of an indie movie with limited resources. And then also I made the choice that anytime a Native Hawaiian speaks to another Native Hawaiian, it was going to be an ole lohoi. And that, (laughs) that sounds easier than it is. But... We did that. We committed and we stuck to it. Having Olelo Hawaii in films, it seems like that's only been the norm in the last maybe 10 years or so. And I wonder if that's kind of a, a marker of how more inclusive the film industry is getting. What are your thoughts on how Hollywood is evolving to include things like native stories told in native languages? Russell, I wish I could be more upbeat about my answer Mm -hmm. because I have seen, yes, changes and there's a lot of discussion about diversity and I'm seeing a lot of positive things going on. But I want to speak to my personal experience. We were rejected 40 times by distributors with this movie, a large part because we were in Native Hawaiian. And their response was, we don't think there's an audience for this. 
you know, there's less than 20,000 speakers of the native Hawaiian language. And people say, well, what, what about like Netflix, you know, the Korean movies they're pushing and all of that? Well, it's all a business model that there's 75 million Korean speakers. Some people have no problem reading subtitles, but they have the backing of an audience that doesn't need subtitles, you know? And we were extremely disappointed because we got in front of the right people and we had some amazing champions, some Native Americans actually in, that are very influential in the film industry, championed us with the major platforms. And we just got turned down again and again. And one of the things that we're most proud of is how that it's authentic and it's yeah. true. Our kumus translated the best that our whole cast could do in the Ni'ihau dialect to try to honor mm -hmm. the original dialect. And our lead kumu, Lena Alafuru, killed herself and our actors killed themselves. Mm -hmm. We only had one fluent speaker that was in the cast, and that was the young boy. The rest had to learn. So, yeah, I do see progress and change but we were kind of ha had a gut punch on the response of this and we're out to prove them wrong and so you know we're we're hitting the film festival circuit and before we open in theaters in hawaii independently but i know there's an audience for this and of the the private screenings we've been doing and involving the, the native hawaiian community in, in the process we feel like we have something really special and we can't can't wait to show it You've been able to work with several recognizable actors in the industry in in the films that you've worked on. I know Jason Scott Lee is in this Wind in the Reckoning film. You've worked with Kiefer Sutherland, Harvey Keitel. Do you have a favorite story from working on set on, on one of your films? With actors specifically? Yeah, yeah, actors or just local people or just whatever your favorite story is from set. Yeah, well... Jason is a, is amazing. He lives here on the Big Island, and we've been wanting to work together for a while. And he just has got an amazing work ethic and was just wonderful to work with. We, we got along great. Um, I think one of the stories on, on Winning the Reckoning was uh, we were, because we were in this bubble, we were only allowed to shoot you know, on this property and some adjacent properties. That was the deal we had with the government. And we have a scene that's a significant scene in the movie where Pi'ilani is bathing in a waterfall and her husband is watching her. And it's this beautiful moment between husband and wife. And we're in Kohala. You're from Big Island. Mm -hmm. You know, there's tons of amazing waterfalls out there, but they wouldn't let us film on any of them. Oh, man. Because of lockdown. So my son was exploring and went up a stream and found a waterfall on private land or just off private land, yeah. which we were allowed to access. We went there to scout and there had been a drought up there and it was, it was dry. So there was water in the pool, but there was no waterfall. And I was bummed. And, you know, you get something in your head as, as a filmmaker, you know, like, look, Pete you know, that she's got to paint this beautiful woman in this waterfall. Right. Anyway, we showed up to actually shoot, and as we showed up and we're setting up the cameras, the waterfall suddenly like turned on and started filling up in front of us. Wow. So I guess it had rained the night before mm -hmm. and the water had been coming down the mountains and it showed up just as we were about to start filming. And we've got, as you'll see in the movie and the trailer, a beautiful waterfall. And it's just one of those things you just smile and thank the creator for uh, working with you because you're usually... It usually goes the other way. So that's that's a fun story from Wind in the Reckoning. Oh, I love it. I love that story. Thanks so much for your time, David. Awesome. Take right. care. And that was film director and Kona native David L. Cunningham talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Cunningham's new film, The Wind and the Reckoning, will make its world premiere at the Boston Film Festival this Saturday, September 24th, before making the rounds on the film festival circuit. We're going to leave you with the trailer. The story I need to tell you is true. I offer and dedicate it to my people, the native Hawaiian. Hawaii! We don't speak that! 
says the wind and the reckoning will be in hawaii theaters in november if you're in indianapolis or san diego you can catch it at film festivals there next month we will have links to more information on the conversation page of our website hawaiipublicradio.org later today Well, that's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to talk about the future of the Hawaiian language, getting Olelo Hawaii with the times. Give us some feedback. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. (music) 